Good morning. So I think I just want to go back over uh, the gospel reading for a few minutes to set up a little bit of what I want to talk to you about uh, this morning. So if you want to go back to Luke 7 in your Bibles or on your phones uh, or wherever else you might be able to access that. So we have here this account where um, Jesus is invited to come to uh, a Pharisee's home for, for dinner. Uh, this is shortly after he does the Beatitudes. So he's been teaching all over the place. And uh, the Beatitudes, <clears throat> in many respects, were the, they were the central portion of his teaching. So apparently, this woman heard Jesus' teaching. And given the kind of life that she lived, um, it made a real impact upon her. It gave her hope. Uh, I mean, I think it's bad enough to be a prostitute in a country like ours, but in a country like Israel, where basically they were a, theo uh, a theocracy, um, I think that, you know, the, the moral um, turpitude, the, the, the vitriol that would have been aimed at her uh, was significant. And knowing her status in that culture, to be so moved by his teaching in such a powerful way that she would actually enter into the home of a Pharisee, a man who, according to, to a certain portion of the Mosaic Law, could have her stoned for being a prostitute. That she was so compelled by his teaching that she followed Jesus into this house. To, yeah. Why would the Pharisees allow him to Well, I mean, that's, I, I don't know that he did. I, I don't think he expected that. I think that he was just as surprised as anyone else, you know. Uh, uh, I don't think that that was something that people would do in that day. And so... Um, so her, uh, the way in which she engaged the teaching of Jesus was just so moving to her, she couldn't help herself. Pretty powerful. I can't tell you the last time when I was reading the Bible that I was so engaged by what I was learning about Jesus that I would do something of this scale. So anyway, she goes in, and she's so moved that she, I guess Jesus was kneeling on his knees, so she came up behind him. So he was kneeling on his knees, his feet were behind him, and she came up, and she was, she was so overwrought by the promise of his teaching that she fell down behind him, and she began to weep because of the newfound hope that she now had, and covered his feet in her tears. Now, in that society, 
Only the lowest of the low of the very lowest of the very lowest would wash another person's feet. And if you did, even then as a slave who was the lowest of the low, you washed a person's feet with your hands. She used her tears and she wiped his feet with her hair. She wanted to be so identified with who he is that the, the, un, that the uncleanliness of his feet were not important to her at all. I mean, it's really stunning. Then she takes this, this uh, box, this alabaster box, which is a soft stone that you carve out and you keep things like perfume in it. Now, and I'll just say it so you get the sense of what, how many tricks do you think she had to turn to fill that box up with perfume and then to take that box and waste it on Jesus to bless him in that kind of a way? I can guarantee you that when she was saving her money up to buy that perfume, that's not what she was thinking originally about how she would use that. I mean, perfume was very important back then because no one took baths. So if you're a prostitute, it's important to smell nice. But if you take that perfume and you give it to somebody else, then you risk your livelihood. Does this make sense to you? So she, she threw all caution to the wind. She went into this Pharisee's home where she could have died just because she went into the home. She took this alabaster box with perfume and she anointed his head and his body with this perfume. And so she, she gave up her ability to work in that kind of a way. She compromised that ability. And she, she performed this unbelievable act of adoration by wetting his feet with her tears and washing and drying it with her hair. And of course, the Pharisee's response was, well, like, you know, if he was a prophet, he'd really know the kind of woman that she was because no prophet of God would, a, would allow a prostitute to touch him. That would be unclean for, her, for him to do. So what we see in all this, and, so, and by the way, and, and so Jesus, in a very kind of clever way, get, just presents this contrast. You know, she did for me as a prostitute, the lowest of the low, what you did not do, and you're supposed to be one of the social elite in this community. I was struck by when Jesus said to him, Simon, can I, can I tell you something? Tell it to me, teacher. So it's all like, you know, hit me with it. It was, it was disrespectful. She cried. And 
he was disrespectful. But all of that, all of that that was happening at that time was here was a woman who was repenting of her sin. And so as I go through what I'm going to go through now, I want you to keep this woman in the background as I work through some of the stuff I'm going to work through because this is one of the classic stories, one of the classic examples of not only repentance, but something that leads to repentance that should be a primary part of repentance, but a thing called contrition. And maybe even penance. So we'll spend, uh, so I'm not going to take any more time because I'm, I don't, I'm hopeful that I have enough time to get through I, I, everything I need to get through here to, to really underscore where we are in this, this little series that we're doing. So, um, so this series is about recalibrating our life and faith. And a, a part of recalibrating our life and faith is the regular practice of repentance. I mentioned to you last week from Romans 7, verses 15 through 20, where Paul talked about, for I do not do the, I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. For I do not want to do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And so we talked about that a little bit last week, about how we have our, this you know, sin in our lives, and it seems to reside there, and we struggle with it, sort of, kind of, um, and we, we may pray about it, and we may be troubled by it, but it's still there, and so we wonder why it's there, and it impacts our life, it impacts our relationship with Christ, our relationship with other people, and the, the Apostle Paul is wrestling with this in Romans chapter 7. And so if it's true of Paul, then it most certainly is true of us. So which caused me then to ask the question, are you currently living out your Christian life optimally? Is your Christian life optimal right now? And if not, why not? Why isn't our Christian life optimal? What specifically is preventing us from substantially raising the level of our effectiveness as believers in Christ? So I offered two diagnostic questions last week, and I explored some of them. I'm going to explore it a little more deeply today. The first question was, what is or are the primary reoccurring sins in our life? And what are they? What are those primary and reoccurring sins? When I say primary, I mean the bigger ones. Not white lies, but bigger ones. And the second question is, why do those sins reoccur and are still there? What are the big ones? And why do they remain? What are the specific sin issues? And so I went through. Uh, I went through um, the uh, a list 
that I offered about, I think these are probably the time, the, sort of like the 10 primary ones that prevent many Christians from living their lives optimally. And so I went through this, this list and, and shared some biblical texts associated with each of them. Apathy, complacency, ignorance. I don't know why that kind of went weird like there, but it's purposelessness is the next one. Priorities. Fear. Rebellion. I did not have self-righteousness last week. I do want to spend a moment or two on self-righteousness. It's really unseemly when believers feel like they've arrived and that they really can't be taught anything more. Humility ought to be one of the primary attributes in any mature believer's life. Self-righteousness is the opposite of that. And I will say this. I think the younger a person is and the more self-righteous they are, the more unseemly it is. At least when you're older, you can brag a little bit about your wisdom and your experience, right? And so yeah, you may have some excuse for being a little more self-righteous. The younger you are, what do you know? I mean, you, you know less, you have less experience and less wisdom. And yet I've encountered people like that. And it's ugly. And let me just say this. I, I do think there's kind of a hierarchy here. I think the worst thing that could happen to a person is to be regularly oppressed by the enemy himself so that you're incapacitated by that oppression. Apathy is something that, it, I mean, it's harmful, but it's, it's, it's not as, uh, I don't think it's as uh, uh, destructive in many, in many respects. So, but self-righteousness, I have right before, right between rebellion and right before bondage. And you might want to note that Jesus, in his most acidic comments towards people, were towards people who were self-righteous. He, he criticized the Pharisees because of their self-righteousness. So self-righteous would be another thing that I would add to this list. Bondage and oppression. It's important that we take care of these. It's important that we address these. It's important that we don't put any of these things on the back burner. They can't stay there. Obviously, they can't be on the front burner, but they certainly can't stay on the back burner either. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So if any of these things remain, these primary issues that get in the way of living our lives optimally for Christ, we will answer for this. Uh, in the great white throne judgment, John records, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So if you don't think apathy is a really big deal, 
Imagine standing before God in all of his glory and power and justifying to him why I didn't care what you did for me and required of me. It didn't matter. It wasn't that important. Stand before the Lord and say to him, I, I, look, I just, I, it just didn't matter. I didn't care. Anybody want to say that? Anybody want to defend that position? Complacency. Imagine standing before a perfect and holy God while being comfortable in our imperfect state and condition and saying, I am satisfied with how I am. I'm satisfied. I didn't need to do anything more about who I really was. Can we defend that? Ignorance. Imagine standing before an omniscient God, arguing that you, need, you knew all you needed to know about him and what he required of you. There was no fascination. There was no additional study necessary. Ignorance is bliss. Have any of us here obtained all that we need to know about God and what he requires of us? Is there more to learn? Is there more to discover? We're responsible for that. And not only are we responsible for that because it honors him, but by knowing more, we do better for him because we know more. You can't do what you don't know. As much as I might want to fly an airplane, I don't know how. And so you wouldn't want to be my passenger if I was the pilot, right? Purposelessness. Imagine standing before God as his handiwork to do good works which he prepared in advance for you to do. And you say to him, um, you, cho you chose to live your life without any overarching and divine purpose. Look, you know, there's really no plan for me. There's really no reason for why I exist. I just, I just do what I want to do. I just kind of float along. And because of that, I'd rather pursue pleasure than purpose. Every year, most of us go through our homes and we see something that exists that no longer has a purpose for us. And what do we do? We throw it out. Now, if you're like me, there's more things that I really should be, you know, find, a, I mean, come to terms with the fact that those things don't have a purpose, but you get my point. If something doesn't have a purpose, then why have it? If God created us for a purpose and we don't fulfill that purpose, then why do we exist? We have to answer for our purpose. Everyone here has a purpose. A divine purpose. Everyone here was created by God. And there is a work or works for you that he prepared in advance for you to do and for me to do. And we have to give an account for that. Priorities. Imagine standing before God having to explain your established list of lived out priorities. While discounting his. <clears throat> and the truth of the matter is we live for and serve that which we love most. Those are our priorities, where we spend our time, what we give our energy to, how we spend our resources are all indicative of what our priorities are. 
What are your priorities? One of the things that I did this year was we have a large dining room and with a big picture window in the back. And, and so we had, I had a bunch of plants growing back there before. It kind of looked like a jungle. So I took some of those plants out, and I had some extra money uh, this past spring, and I bought a, a comfortable armchair, and I put it in front of the picture window. Because I, I want a place where I can, where in the priority of me spending time with God and getting my mind and heart together before the day, I can just sit there. And I can read, or I can listen. Now, there are other ways in which I could have spent that money. But in that presence, in that place, it's a priority. And I love that place in my home. Fear. I was afraid. Remember the parable of the talents, the servant who was afraid to fail, the one who received the one talent? Or where Jesus said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but rather fear him who can kill the body and the soul in hell. If we have a lot of fear in our life, we struggle with not having enough love. Love overcomes fear. I remember when I got out of college and I started uh, pastoring at a church, a little Baptist church in, Wy in Wiley Hill, uh, Elwood City. And, you know, every Sunday when I would prepare my message, the first thing in my mind was a fear of would, would people like what I was going to say? Would I make some kind of a mistake or whatever? Would, would I offend somebody? And so I'd have to fight that fear. And then finally I just had this kind of like epiphany where, look, these people need to hear this. It can't matter what they think. It only matters what Christ thinks, what he's leading me to say. And because I care about them, I have to say what needs to be said. And from that moment on, I never really had those feelings again. I didn't really care about what people thought because I loved them enough to tell them what the Lord wanted me to say. Does this make sense to you? You know? So fear can't be a reason. Rebellion. Imagine standing before God and having to explain our systemic and willful rebellion over his will, and his overarching purpose for our lives. Like everyone here today, within the last week, I bet, heard the Holy Spirit speak to you and say, I want you to do this. And we rebelled. And we said, no, I'm not going to do that. We allowed ourselves to be distracted, something else to come into play. And we never did it. We rebelled. We did it our way. Right? And this is a regular thing for all of us. Everyone here, if, if you're a human being, 
There's always an element of rebellion in our lives before God, always. And we have to deal with that rebellion. Self-righteousness. Imagine standing before God and explaining to him, you didn't need to work on personal growth because you had arrived. You knew it all. Bondage. Imagine standing before God in heaven and asking him why you became comfortable in your bondage, your addiction, your obsession, your inability to come to terms with certain weaknesses or strengths gone awry. And you're in bondage to it. There's all kinds of ways in which we can overcome bondage in our life. We don't have to be a slave to our sin. The Holy Spirit living in us illuminates the way, gives us the power to overcome the bondage of sin in our life. So there's no excuse. Oppression. And I don't expect anybody here is oppressed, but if you are oppressed, remember that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Confess Christ in faith and his lordship over all things. So now I come to my second question. Why do those sins reoccur and are still there? Let me ask you this question. For those of you who were last week or listened to the, this on, on, online, when I went through the 10 things that I just went through today, how many of us went home that week and we wrestled with those issues, one, one or more of those issues? How many of us this past week thought in their head, well, you know, that's true. I have that and I do have that, maybe that. And then for the next week until today, we wrestled with it. We sought the Lord's help. We repented. Repentance is a necessary and daily discipline. Repentance means, well, let me, let me just say this. It is a necessary and daily discipline. A daily discipline. When we wake up in the morning, when we go to bed at night, it's a good thing, our very right and good thing to know, to be aware of what our sins were for that day and to repent of that. When we do that, then the issues are always before us and the grace is always available. We're reminded of that. So repentance means to change direction by 180 degrees. It means that I'm going in this direction and it's bad. It's one or, one or more of those tens of kinds of sins that we talked about. And then we come to, we say, this is really bad. I can't do this. I need to turn around and go in the opposite direction. If you are self-righteous and you repent from it, then you choose to be humble. If you, 
if you are a lustful person and lust is a, a large part of your life and you, you say, I, I just can't do this anymore, then you cut out those things that cause the lust in your life. You stop it. You go in the opposite direction. Remember this. No repentance, no change. No change, no fruit. No fruit, no evidence. No evidence, maybe no salvation and restoration. That is what John chapter 15 says. If there is no repentance, there is no change. Because you're still going in the same direction. You're still building your life around the wrong way to go. So if there's no repentance, there's no change. So if we stood before the Lord and he said, why didn't you change? Oh, no, because you didn't repent. So what is the anatomy of repentance? Now, I will say that in the story of the woman in the alabaster box, that that anatomy is, either, is there either implied or overt. In that whole story, this anatomy of repentance is there. So what is it? Before we repent, there has to be awareness or illumination. You have to become aware. Some people sin, and they may suspect that it's wrong, but they're not exactly sure that it's wrong. We, and we, in third world countries, in, mission, in missionary work, we discover this all the time. But there has to become awareness and illumination. And after the Holy Spirit makes us aware of our sin, we usually experience a thing called guilt. Some of us are, very good, are pretty good tamping down the guilt, and we live in a culture that does everything that it can to reduce the importance of guilt. Following guilt comes conviction. Like, I, I feel bad. No, I, this is, you know, and conviction is like, you got to change this. That, that this is, you can't have this guilt. You can't have this now. So you're convicted about it. And then confession. This is wrong. I can't do this anymore. Lord, forgive me. Help me not to do this any longer in my life. And after confession, there's contrition. Now, contrition is something that has fallen on hard times in the life of the believer in the church. I'm going to spend a little time on that. And after contrition, there's forgiveness, the seeking of forgiveness. Lord, please forgive me for the sin in my life. And after forgiveness, there's repentance. I've sought forgiveness, and now I'm going to make these changes. I'm going to go in the opposite direction. And after repentance, there's restoration and peace. This dynamic here really ought to be a daily part of all of our lives. 
If there is any way in which we are imperfect, then this applies to us. These eight stages ought to be daily occurrences in the life of the mature believer especially. So let me just break these down very quickly. Awareness. There's this beautiful text from Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I love the New American Standard Bible version of this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me, O Lord, and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Do you want to know the ways in which you grieve the Lord? Do you want to know that? We should all want to know that. So that's awareness. Guilt. Psalm 14.3. For all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. We're all guilty. Even on our best day, we're all guilty. We're never complete. But we've come a long way. And that should always be celebrated. That's a great thing. But we're not a finished work nor will we ever be a finished work. Conviction. Now, after, uh, after Peter had sort of recounted the history of redemption uh, in the book of Acts and shared with them about why they needed to come to faith, the people responded in this way. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So in the same way that when the prostitute heard the message of Jesus, she too was cut to the heart. When these people who heard the history of how God planned to redeem human, humanity, they were cut to the heart when they heard about what Jesus did for them on the cross. Conviction. We should be convicted, cut to the heart by our sin. And so when he, the Holy Spirit, comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That is the role of the Holy Spirit, to bring conviction to us. And sometimes we resist that conviction. And when we do, we grieve the Holy Spirit. And so Paul says in Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. That when we resist the the awareness that God brings, that the Holy Spirit brings to our life, we grieve the Holy Spirit in that way, and we ought not to do that. We ought not to resist because that resistance is rebellion. Confession. The Apostle John says in John, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So when we work through this process, in, that towards the end, when we confess, we are forgiven. Many of us are carrying with us this, this guilt that hovers over us because of our sin, because we've not confessed it. Contrition. Contrition means sincere remorse for wrongdoing. And the greater the wrong the deeper 
the contrition. Contrition is sincere remorse. It's amazing. Think about this. When was the last time any of us experienced sincere remorse for sin in our lives that we became aware of? Contrition. And that's what the woman in the city, the woman with the alabaster box experienced. Contrition. Her presence there was confession of her sin. Her presence there was seeking forgiveness of Jesus for her sin. But her actions were actions of contrition. And because she dealt with, she allowed herself to be contrite, it brought to maturity her repentance. She sacrificed the alabaster box because in, by doing that, it would prevent her from continuing on to do the kind of work. That was repentance. The selling of the, the, the giving of the alabaster box was the symbol of repentance. The way in which she, she wept and she used her hair was contrition. She felt sincere sorrow for the life that she had lived. Contrition is the hinge of the emotional engagement of our wrongdoing. It is the emotional hinge of the engagement of our wrongdoing. The apostle, or I'm sorry, King David, shortly after his sin with Bathsheba and in his desire to reconcile himself to God, wrote Psalm 51. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Contrition. If any of us have a laissez-faire with our sin, we are not contrite, and we cannot repent. We will not repent without contrition. And then repentance itself. The motives for repentance are chiefly found in the goodness of God, in his divine love, in the pleading desire to have sins forgiven, in the inevitable consequences of sin, in the universal demands of the gospel through Jesus' substitutionary death on the cross, and the hope of spiritual life and membership in the kingdom of heaven. True repentance leads a person to say, I have sinned. Improve it with a 180-degree change in the direction. Repentance requires true brokenness. Repentance is not asking the Lord for forgiveness with the intent to sin again. Repentance is honest, regretful acknowledgement of sin with commitment to change. Repentance leads us to cultivate godliness and Christlikeness while eradicating habits that lead to sin. So here's what I want to do. Bree, if you'd pull up that uh, one slide that shows uh, the two important lists. These, this is the list. In every one, the, 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 left, the list on the left, everyone in this room, everyone in this room has one or more of these in their lives right now. 
So I want you to take one. Just take one right now. And I want you to close your eyes. And I'm just going to work through that list on the right. So everybody, if you would, just close your eyes. Lord, I just pray that you would make us aware, poignantly aware of the sin in our life. Any of those sins on the left in particular, Lord, just pick one for us. <coughs> Help us to see it. Help us to see how it works out in our life, how it is obvious and real. Help us to see that it's wrong. To feel, to authentically feel the guilt associated with it, that we are guilty for harboring that sin. Bring upon us conviction. Help us to see that it must not, it must change. It can't be allowed to continue to exist in our life as it does now. We confess it to you. We confess that that sin is there. And we are sorry. Our hearts are wounded because of it. Our lives are broken because of its existence. We are embarrassed that we have allowed it to stay as long as it has. We are embarrassed that we have resisted your Holy Spirit as he sought to make us aware and to repent of it. Forgive us. Forgive us of our sin. That particular sin, forgive us, we pray. Help us to turn away from it, to reject it, to abandon it, And as we do, as we experience your forgiveness and the joy of that sin's abandonment, that we enter into the joy of your presence more deeply still and our lives are restored even more Give us strength, we, pay, we pray, to overcome that particular sin, the habits associated with it, the mind that's been crafted by it. Help us, we pray, to break from all of that and enter into the joy of our Master our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ. Have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. I am so hopeful that as a church and as a church family that what we've talked about the last two weeks will be a permanent change in direction about how we live our lives and how we express ourselves as a church. Don't let, in whatever way this has been a, a good thing for you, don't let it die. Don't let it be a mere intellectual exercise. But choose this day to move forward in a more powerful and a more qualitative way so that everyone here can raise the level of the way in which we live our faith out in Christ. And this church, collectively, can have the impact in the world that it's designed to have. Don't let it go.